to Wine and Murder Night, a podcast where two friends discuss and drink about their favorite cozy mysteries. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. And I'm Sabrina Marshausen. And today is my birthday! Happy birthday to you, hip hip hurrah, for she's a jolly good fellow, for she's a jolly good fellow, she's a jolly good fellow, and no one can deny, etc. <laughs> Thank you very much. Happy birthday. Thank you. I had some time on Wednesday, which was 4th of July, and that's actually when I watched this uh, this episode that we're going to be discussing today, and I thought about going down to the liquor, like I went to the liquor store to get beer for my uh, barbecue that I was going to later that night, and I was like, oh, I should get something nice for my birthday, and because we're podcasting on my birthday and we're going to do a little day drinking and so maybe I'll get like a nice bottle of bubbles and then I had forgotten to bring a bag so I stuck the six pack in my purse and I was like you know what I'll get wine another on tomorrow at the nice liquor store and not the one by my house and then I was lazy and didn't do that so now I you know to kind of to seg right into what are you drinking I'm drinking a seven day old bottle of rosé nice Sounds good. Are we calling it nice? Because it's a, it's a, it's a little tart. Uh, yeah, no. Um. But I am drinking. It was very good the day I opened it. I will say that uh, I <laughs> the Matua Pinot Noir Rosé uh, from Marlborough, New Zealand, at uh, eleven fifteen a.m. Because it's my birthday and I can do what the fuck I want. Nice. It'll be noon by the time. We finish, so technically that's okay. I mean, it's um, all brunch. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I am, I am drinking a uh, Riesling from Chateau Saint Michel in Washington State. Um, I got it actually on July the fourth. Um, weird that I didn't see the say the fourth of July there. So it's okay. It's a bit limey, which is interesting, but it is a Riesling. It is a Riesling. It's an American Riesling, which is uh, not not a common thing. Well, actually, I, the one of the best Rieslings I had was in Oregon. It was from Oregon, not in Oregon. Um, was from Oregon, and I had it. Ooh, in a in I was staying at the Marriott in Atlanta fancy and i had truffle fries Ooh. and a glass of riesling from oregon and it was actually delicious that actually does sound really good <laughs> yeah the truffle fries were decent but not great but the wine was fantastic there's actually a bar down the street that does truffle truffle aioli and i might go do that after this podcast because i haven't really eaten today which also makes for some interesting podcasting <laughs> <laughs> I, I just had uh i don't cook you know the ramen that comes in the pack? I don't cook it. I eat it like it's crisps. Uh, okay. I put the... Okay, this is a trick that I learned from a friend when we were road tripping in uh, Iceland. He bought these ramen things, and then he opened it, pulled the uh, flavoring, and in Iceland, they, it also comes with flavor oil, which was nice, and he, like, crunched it up with the flavor oil and the flavoring, and then ate little, like, things, and uh, that's where I love to do it, and it's still something I do. To this day. Well, that sounds like a really good snack, but I'm, I've, I've had like three tortilla chips because then I got distracted and 
I drink a lot of coffee and coffee is an appetite suppressant. And so then a lot of times, like if I don't remember to eat, then I'd get like stupid hungry at like 1130. And I'm like, well, I might as well just wait for lunch anyway at that point. So sure. that that's what happens to me on my days off. Sure. Uh, well, uh, as a teacher, it's been nothing but days off since like the 30th of May. So um, I eat a good dinner, but like I eat a good breakfast and I eat a good dinner. But in between, it's just like grazing randomly. <laughs> like it's not, it's not very structured. I'll have to say. No, no, my whole life is very much like, how do I get from one meal to the next? <laughs> Which you know, whatever. It's kind of like, how do we get from the start of this podcast, the actual podcast, which is, you know, how I'm going to about seg this. So uh, we watched this week the second episode of Midsummer Murders. So we watched Written in Blood. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. Shall we get right to it? Yes. My very first note is a town of writers sounds insufferable. <laughs> Everyone thinks they're a writer. My very first note was about the opening, which was like all about this like super suspenseful music. And like, it sounds like a thriller and you see this like dude get shot in his bed and it pans back and it's a young boy. Mm -hmm. And then it cuts to title. And one thing I will say is last time I was like, I thought only the first episode of Midsummer Murders was based on a book, but no, this one is actually based on a novel as well. Which I do okay. think played into it a little bit. Yes, I mean, uh, and writers writing about writing is like murder, like well, literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I cannot like it's so dull. The process of writing is not something that needs to be written about. It's individual. It's private, and you know, it's torturous. And then you're like it's the fucking worst. Yes. And I'm no, I'm not a writer. I write during National Novel Writing Month, and that's about it. Um, my writing is nonfiction because of my master's degree, uh, which is a different animal entirely. So it's fiction writers, are fiction writers. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, so I'm working on my first book. I'm I'm very close to finishing it, and I'm like struggling so hard to get through these last several scenes, several chapters, and I'm. Yeah, no, I feel everything you just said deep in my soul right now because I just want to jab my eyes out with a pen instead of actually typing words. <laughs> but I did actually very much love this opening scene. This opening scene, when you get past the title credits, is my favorite one in the entire movie where you've got the introduction to all the different writers, but they're introducing them how they write. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got... Um, Gerald Gerald Hadley, right? Is yeah, first. Gerald Hadley is the first guy. He's writing a thriller, and it's like talking about all the different kinds, you know, like shooting shooting scene. I guess he's like reading yeah. it out loud. Yes. And then you meet um, Laura Hutton, and she's like walking down the street, writing her romance novel in her head. And you meet the Clappers with Brian Clapper specifically saying some dialogue. I thought he was writing poetry at first, but you know, we find out that it's a play, and I was like, what is this balding white man doing writing like slam poetry? Oh yeah, God. 
I have some thoughts on Brian Clapper that oh, we will get to. We all, we all have thoughts on Brian Clapper. <laughs> He's an awful person. He's an awful person. And they show that in this very first scene where, like, Sue, his wife, like, reads over his shoulder and she goes, oh, that's a bit repetitive. And he's, like, such a dick to her about a very correct comment. And I love Sue Clapper. She's such she's such a dingy, like, there are women in Britain who are exactly like her, and I have met them, and I love them. They're so, like, she's so, I, I don't know if they have them here in America. They might do, I don't know. Oh, I haven't met, oh no. But I, they I never do. met one exactly like her here in America. I guess she's like the Trelawney. She's a Trelawney. She's a. Um, you just have to just... go to Boulder. Ah uh, well, yeah. Well, I can't. <laughs> no, I mean, don't. But like, <laughs> I will die. So you. I mean, anti-history. that's that's why they're there, though. Like, I mean, oh. yeah, like Boulder, Portland. They're not like they're like the old. They're not hipsters. They're the old hippies. They yes. are the children yeah. of the hippies who were raised as hippies and are still hippies. But I feel like the British, they don't need the marijuana to be that way, which I find amusing. <laughs> they're just like, oh, everything's beautiful. They are hippies, but they're a different kind of hippie because Britain had the hippies. Sue Clapper is my favorite character in the whole thing. Yeah. Absolutely. She's, she's definitely mine. Um, she's not my... Most favorite, we'll get to my most favorite, but she is up there. <laughs> um, so I thought, and then the last people we get to meet in this writer's circle are uh, Honoria and Amy uh, Lydiard. Mm -hmm. Lydiard. Yes. Um, and Honoria is doing a history of the Lydiard family in uh, England, but specifically how, like, I guess the Lydiards influenced everything. Yes. The war bed woof. Yes. <laughs> yes. That. And yeah, I know people like that too. <laughs> I know Americans like that. Oh, my family came over to Plymouth. Oh, yeah. Well, so. You should have stayed. Fun fact uh, I could be in the Daughters of the American Revolution. Nice. But mostly my family is made up of like fairly recent immigrants, like uh, German and, and Irish. Yeah. My, I am a, I'm a first generation. On my mother's side, I'm first generation. But on my father's side, I'm sorry, I have a pen in my hand. Um, <laughs> on my father's side, he is the ancestor of obviously slaves. So, or if you don't, I, this is not a video medium. I'm half black. <laughs> I'm half black, so it might not be too obvious. But um, so I am first generation on one side, not really an immigrant on the other side, so there you go. Uh, so this whole writer's circle, they come together, I guess, once a month and invite a author to speak mm -hmm. to them. Yes. And they're going around the circle, obviously, uh, Brian dismisses his suggestion because he's a dick. Mm -hmm. um, but Amy comes up with, what about Max Jennings? She's reading his book, she likes it, he's from close by, and uh, Jared Hadley objects. Gerald. Gerald. Gerald, Gerald Hadley objects. Uh, object strenuously. Yes. And that uh, is kind of where we start to get this whole tension of the plot kicked off. Yes. They write to Max Jennings. Mm -hmm. And then we get to my second favorite scene of the movie, of the entire episode. Yes. 
where Max Jennings is debating whether or not to go to this writer's group. And he ultimately decides yes. But the reason this scene is so great is because of his wife. Who is one of the five British actors and has been since 1958. Oh my gosh. She has been on British television since 1958. And she plays this exact same woman in every single one of them. She is Mrs. Hudson from Sherlock, Una Stubbs, who is a brilliant actress, but Americans will know her from that. Oh. So, by this same person, though, we mean the woman in her silk nightie, clearly like 9 a.m., 10 a.m. in the morning, just rolling out of bed, and the first thing she grabs is a cocktail. Yes. Kind of like me on my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, like all British women her age. Yes. I mean, honestly, though, isn't that the dream? Of being married to a wealthy man and being able to get up at 10 in the morning with a cocktail? Sure. Since I don't drink regularly, I just want their kitchen. The only thing... so nice. The only thing that was off about their kitchen was that there wasn't an auger. And every rich person in Britain has an auger. And they didn't. It was disappointing. An auger is an always-on gas stove. Um, Oh. And it's uh, it's very expensive. Thousands and thousands of pounds. But um, it's an always-on gas stove. And it has two compartments up top. One for boiling water and one for keeping things warm. Um, and then it has four, uh, anywhere from four to six compartments at the bottom where you put things in various compartments for baking, for broiling, for doing everything. And it's constantly on, so you never have to worry about the temperature. And I love it. I actually lived in a house with one, and I miss it. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> I miss it. And so much. Like, I, you, you become like this amazing chef because of it because (laughs) every compartment is kept at a certain temperature and it's always on so you don't have to fiddle with it or anything it's beautiful anyway that's the only thing about the kitchen it didn't have an auger so i was like not actually rich (laughs) well i mean he's max jennings he's not jk rowling right yes so (laughs) i mean they had a they had a big house and the kitchen was very nice and it was very british every you know a show is set in britain by their kitchens and every kitchen in Britain looks the same. If, even if it has an auger, it doesn't. They all look the same. So that gets us right into Mr. Barnaby, or DCI Barnaby. He's sitting, hanging out at home with Joyce, uh, who says probably my favorite line in the entire, entire episode, which is, if someone doesn't get murdered soon, you'll only get touchy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touchy. Right? It was like one of those things that's like, oh, that's not great. (laughs) Well, like, he lives in a small... This isn't London, so he doesn't have a lot of murders to deal with. And, you know, as a DI, he wants something a little bit more to do, not... Yeah, I mean, I get it, but at the same time... Yeah, I know. So anyway, Cully pops by, leaves. She's going off to Poland with her new, like, director boyfriend or something to do, what was it, As You Like It? It's not Shakespeare. I don't even remember. And she leaves her kitten, who is 
my favorite character of the show because I of course you are because you're a crazy cat lady I am a crazy cat lady it's a Russian blue named Kilmowski it's amazing he's so cute he's so he is cute. Mike he is really adorable I am a dog person I've always been a dog person I I especially love Great Danes those are my favorite I love all dogs though don't get me wrong every dog is a good dog well I mean but... I like dogs I don't get me wrong I love dogs too but I am definitely a cat owner <laughs> yes yes so Honoria who's doing her research I guess hangs out around uh, Laura Hutton's antique shop a lot oh ah I wrote something about this but go ahead uh, I was just going to say so that's where we go next is she goes to Laura's antique shop and gets a bunch of papers and Laura Hutton was crying for some reason, and then she's like, no, she's hay fever. And I literally wrote, British people don't cry, they just have hay fever all the time. And I think I had just gotten finished watching some miniseries where every time somebody cried, they were like, oh no, it's just hay fever. <laughs> oh, it was, it was Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Oh. That's what it was, and it was just hay fever all the time. <laughs> I mean... That, that could be me. It's, it's, it's just dusty in here. It's just dusty. Uh, nobody ever sees me cry, so... <laughs> I just cry at home by myself. No one ever sees it. God, I wish. Every once in a while, like, the worst crying you can possibly do is frustrated work tears. Oh my god. And I have had that before. And that is my, like absolutely his favorite kind of crying because then somebody is always like are you okay and then you start crying more no no darling hay fever <laughs> next time next time i just got out of a meeting with a lot of hay fever <laughs> it was just pollen everywhere <laughs> honoria sees something in the papers because she's always collecting these papers especially about her brother uh, in his service in the Navy and uh, she runs to Gerald's house but he's not home um, but Brian is there she sees her he sees her and yells at her tells him that he's not home and then uh, the next note I have and I don't actually remember what happens in this scene is that but the note is Brian is a real shit to his wife Sue who is a children's author <laughs> she she talks about bringing the her paper mache dragon oh no, she's painting, she's doing a watercolor, and he goes, don't dragons usually, uh, and he, and she goes, no, I mean, he hasn't learned that yet, it's part of the story, which I think is an adorable story, I would love to read that, like, at, like, we have children's, we have the children's, uh, it's called the Time for All Ages at my church, and, um, usually they have a volunteer to read some children's story that goes with the theme of the sermon before they go to their religious education classes. Um, and, um, like, if that was a real book, I would love to read that. Like, it would, I'm sure it would have some theme, like, you know, grow at your own pace and you don't have to be like everyone, you know, mm -hmm. you, you'll find your own joy or whatever the fuck. But I was like, that's an adorable story. Like a dragon learning how to breathe fire. Like, what the hell? That's yeah. adorable. Anyway. He's just such a shit. He's just such a shit. He is. He's awful. So the last scene we get right before we go into this very tense author reading is Gerald asks 
Amy not to leave him alone with Max Jennings. So we get our first real confirmation that they know each other prior to this hall going down. kind of hated Max Jennings like I mean he was whatever right when he was talking to his wife or whatever because we didn't know know him but like he's pompous as hell I, I called him pretentious I said pretentious rightly claptrap yeah there was no real insight which authors rarely have when you ask an author a question about craft it's difficult because it's so individual for each author so I would like that's not a question like I would rather have him talked about his most recent book like I would rather have him them had like a authorly discussion about faraway hills about the symbolism in it about the language about anything which which would have been a better foreshadowing because we would have seen Gerald be really uncomfortable because of what happens you know yeah, I totally. I, I'm the same. I'm on the same page. I, I honestly, I put a lot of the blame on like the terrible ass questions they asked. They 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 brought this actual author into their writer circle, published guy, bestseller, best-selling author, and he asks for questions. And then there's that uncomfortable pause when no one wants to ask a question. And then like the first question you get is like, "How do you make your character so real?" Like, no one wants to answer that question. No one wants to answer that question. It's awful. But this is where we really started getting a lot of very suspicious behavior. And that's literally all I wrote down. <laughs> I, I wrote about uh, Sue Clapper's glasses. This, those round, those large ones. Like, oh, gosh. They're not bottle thick, but they're Trelawney glasses. They really well, but they're 90s glasses. That's they're the very... other thing. Is they're super 90s glasses. I had her glasses when I was in third grade. Yeah, no, no, no. These are definitely <laughs> these are definitely 90s glasses. Harry Potter was set in the 90s. So there you go. <laughs> I know. I know. I love that, actually. Like, And I really honestly wish that the films had done a little bit more. Like, if yeah. they had just watched Midsummer Murders before they did the costuming... Yeah, because there's okay. some excellent '90s in this mo in this particular episode. Also, like I know we talked a lot about yes. it last week, but like this one. Yeah, I got it. So we move on, and you know, next day, uh, like Amy does her best to try and not leave uh, Gerald and Max alone, but mm -hmm. Max goes back in. Um, uh, we see Laura skulking in the bushes outside of Gerald's house. Then we see Brian like return from like a late night drive somewhere um, and like duck down behind his car. Like everybody's acting like they just murdered somebody. What's weird is that there's messing about with time. You don't know quite when this all happened. Yeah. After everyone left. So I think that's interesting that you're kind of messing about, like, when did Laura sneak in the bushes? When was Brian out? Mm -hmm. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Also, theremins are always over the top. OTT, totally OTT. You know, <laughs> when you gotta take something to the next level, theremins. <laughs> oh yeah, so you know, you know shit is going down when you hear a theremin, especially if it's a murder since it's part of their theme song. Yeah. 
So next day, housekeeper arrives. Uh, she walks in and immediately is kind of like, hmm, there's a wedding photo that was in a drawer that she pulls out and sets back up. And she's, Mr. Hadley, Mr. Hadley. And she walks into the Mr. Hadley's bedroom because she can't find him. And all we see are naked legs on the floor. And she just screams. My note about this is always the cleaning lady what finds them. Pretty much. Pretty much. And that's our first victim for the episode. So Grandpa Death shows up, obviously. This time, and I did actually almost, call, I forgot to comment on this last time, but last time he wasn't wearing any sort of like coroner's protective gear, and this time he was, so I did appreciate that. Like, we've, we've watched enough NCIS and like what, yeah. CSI to know mm -hmm. that like, you were contaminating the site, George. <clears throat> Although this was the 90s. It was the DNA, 90s. DNA evidence was still kind of shaky. So, you know, they did have, you know, but they could have ruled out his shedding, you know, as him being there. But it was just a pilot. Uh, I appreciated that this guy was killed with a uh, candlestick, a yes. la Clue. Yes. Mr. Hadley in the bedroom with a candlestick. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also discover that all of his clothes are missing from the closet, which is like the weird fact at the scene of the murder. Yes. And Troy is doing the um, tell, don't show of saying things that are particularly obvious to everyone, <laughs> including the audience, and I hate that. Like, I hate when they like tell, so, I mean, unless it's blind people who are watching, then that's quite helpful. I, I guess that could be the only reason why you would do that. But it's one of those things that are like, yes, the camera is a very good, you know, viewer. <laughs> Thank you, Troy. I mean, I think that's part of, though, why Barnaby is so dismissive of Troy. Like, I get that like, they're using him as a vehicle to be like, look at this. Yes. But also, even with that vehicle, they want us to intuit some things. Yes. Why would all his clothes be missing? Right, exactly. The first person they go see, which I thought was kind of weird, after talking a little bit to um, the housekeeper and, you know, Troy sticks his foot in it like Troy's want to do, mm -hmm. is Sue Clapper. And I was like, okay, sure, let's go interview Sue, because, I mean, I guess there's no reason not to from the Barnaby's perspective, but, like, us as the viewer, like, we have been taught to see Sue as fairly, not, not just harmless, but, like, also kind of, you know, Trelawney. She's Trelawney. Like, could she even plan a murder? Like... Yes. I mean, the only person I could see her murdering is her husband. And only... And that, that would be justified. And only probably by accident. Take a look inside this auger, Brian. Yes. <laughs> could, you, could you fix it? Oh, I forgot to turn it off. So she just drops some quick gossip, talks a little bit about Laura having a thing for Gerald, talks a little bit about Honoria's like, obsession with her brother. But the big suspicious thing she does is cover for her husband. Yeah, he was holding his feet right as his head hit the pillow. I mean, I know you and I have watched enough of these to know that that's not a thing that actually anybody believes when you say it. Yeah. So I just, I wonder, like, 
Do people actually say that to the police? Like, do they think they're going to get away with it? I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, I guess. I guess. But only, like... No, no one believes that. No one believes that. No. No, very true. I mean, the only time my head hits the pillow out of mouth is if I've had way too much to drink. <laughs> okay, that is true. If I am drunk, I will fall asleep right away. And we, we know that Brian drinks quite a bit of red wine in his life. So he might have done. He might but have done. The the problem with Sue is that everything she says is a little suspect. Like she just has that voice. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, of course I don't smoke pot. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that shed in the back, if we were to open it, we wouldn't find like a whole grow lot, would we? Yeah, so I think it's just Sue. Sue Sue is just suspicious. Yeah, Sue is just suspicious, even though we love her to death. But because of her very suspicious covering, the next person on the interview list is Brian Clapper. My note here is, so we intro on Brian Clapper's theater class. Mm -hmm. And my biggest note here is, why is he so sweaty? Because he's fat and moves around a lot. He's, but like, I mean, he's like full on gym sweaty. He's not like me. Like I'm, I sweat. I'm overweight. I sweat, <laughs> and I particularly get kind of gross under the boobs and yes. under the arms. Well, there's no under the boob for him, so it's all on his upper pecs, you know. So there's no place for it to go. But I'm like would... a triangle of gross at yes. school. Like if you, like I mean, you're a teacher, like. Would you wear something that you could visibly see all of the sweat in? No. But also, I don't move around like that. I mean, teachers move around like that, but I don't move around quite like that because I'm a stayed French teacher. Also, I'm too German for that. <laughs> when I first started at my new school district, I became friends with the two new teachers that were coming in with me. And a uh, drama teacher at a high school and he was he was he was actually fairly good looking like young not anything like Brian Clapper but what happened to Brian Clapper is exactly what happened to this uh, high school uh, teacher and as soon as I saw Brian Clapper again I was like oh just like so and so oh no oh yeah I don't think there were pictures but it happened. Um, or there might actually there were pictures. We I never saw them, but I know there were. Oh no! So to to take this back just a step for for anybody following along, Brian Clapper is uh, fixated on one of his students named Edie. That I wrote down Eddie, which is an entirely different kind of student. Like Edie Sedgwick. Yes. Yes, and my other thing I have here is that his god, I wrote down his goddamn laugh. Because not only is he like a creepy person in like the way he plays it, and I actually think this actor is doing a fucking fabulous job. Yeah, as a pun, uh, which is fabulous. I mean, I guess if. I hope he's not actually wrong. That would be bad. Yeah, like, but I hope he's acting. <laughs> he's doing a really good job. Um, but he has this laugh that's just oh. like. <laughs> like, I mean, he's got the pervert laugh. Yes. Uh, Let's see. So they kind of know something's up. 
there, but they can't really pin him on anything. So they move on to their next interview, which is Honoria and Amy, uh, mm-hmm. the Lydiards. Yes. And she is dreadfully snobbish. She's living in an old estate that is in disrepair. And there aren't many people like this anymore because you'll just, if you're poor in, in, in assets but not in land, those people don't exist anymore. They were already dying out in the 90s and those people just don't happen anymore. You have to do something with your estate to make money. And what people who have those old estates and old titles do is that they create like fun palaces out of the estate. I remember one created like a nine hole golf course. One created a racetrack. So by the 90s, this was already dying out. Like, And that's, that actually like kind of becomes a plot point in some of the later episodes of Midsummer Murders. Like you start to get a lot of episodes where it's like, we're going to lose the estate because we actually don't have any money or like mm-hmm. somebody's trying to buy the estate because we don't have any money, but not so for Honoria Lydiard. Yeah, no. Who is dreadfully snobby to them, but she does also deliver my second favorite line of the episode, which is, I'll say good day. Yes, I'll say good day. Like, okay. <laughs> like, I have dismissed this interview. Go now. Yeah. Yeah, like... Like, she has the wherewithal or even the title. She's not the fucking queen. Like, this isn't Queen Victoria. The police can ask you any questions they want to. And really, the queen doesn't have any power either. So the police could ask the queen any questions they wanted to if she were involved in a murder, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) So it was just, it was so, like, she was trying. She was putting on severe airs. And... Like I said, people like Honoria don't really exist anymore. Although, you know, people do put on airs. But, um, I guess me included. Try not to, but there you go. (laughs) But, um, but she does put on airs. And you immediately dislike her for that. Because being pretentious and putting on airs like that, even in Britain, is unpopular. It's super unpopular. What the fuck? It's super unpopular here in uh, America. But it is even in yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I can't deal with people like that. I can't. I just won't. And I maybe that's, like, such an American thing, because I... You don't have to. Like, that's the other thing. It's mm-hmm. like, America very much has class issues, right? Yeah. But they're a very different kind of class issue, whereas we don't have that nobility type thing. Like, yeah. there are... In we- cities and stuff like you that, or, like, even in small towns, you do get, like, oh, well, I'm from the blank family that's been here for 20 generations. And you're like, your family's been there since, like, 1900. Yeah. <laughs> that's all that means. That's all that means, darling. And, um... Yeah. <laughs> and also, like... Unless you have money, that means nothing in America. Nothing. Like, if you have a name and no money, it means nothing in America. And At least in, like, my experience. Oh, no. and But in Britain, if you have a name and no money, it's okay because you've still got the name. Right. So class is a little bit different in Britain. It still is also wrapped up in race and sexism yeah. and all that. Oh. But... But. Yeah, that's all, that's all still, like, a very part of American culture. But the, the idea of of having, like, a family name is all based on fortune. Yeah. it's an, Having that noble class is pretty unique to Britain. Even in places where there's still kings and queens, like Denmark and Sweden and stuff, there are big families, like, big family names. But 
they're such a casual society in the Nordics that it's not it's it's no big deal. Like they'll still wear jeans and sit next to you on the bus. <laughs> yeah, like I've seen like the King of Sweden has like a collection of funny hats that he likes to wear in public. Yeah. yeah. So if I were going to be a subject of any country, it'd definitely be Sweden because fuck Britain. Also, they wouldn't accept me anyway. But <laughs> I mean so we move on to our very, very last interview with somebody else who is a little bit different. And so they go to try and interview Mrs. Jennings mm. because they're trying to track down Max Jennings, who was also supposedly there last night. Mm. And she's very, very clearly several cocktails deep at this point because it's, you know, at least noon. And at one point, she also does her own version of I'll Say Good Day, but hers is stripping off her little sarong that she was wearing leaning on her lounge chair and jumping in the pool. <laughs> I've had enough of this conversation. I wish that if I just didn't feel like talking to you, I could just go and jump in a pool. Really, I that's, that's such an end of a conversation. Like, fuck this. I'm going to go and not even, like, dive. She just belly flops into she the She just pool. jumped. Like, just she's straight like, up jumped. Bye. Uh, I, I'm done with this. <laughs> and, like... I like how Troy is scandalized that she's still That was still exactly what I was just about to say. He's so... She's swimming in her jewels. And I'm like, Troy, what the fuck do you care? <laughs> Are you trying to put on as yourself, Troy? <laughs> like, right? He definitely sounds like somebody's... Like, he sounds like Hyams in the bouquet right there. Yeah. <laughs> like, he is, like, the most shocked... Not GCI Barnaby is just chilling and tries so like yeah God, yeah absolutely. fluttering his hands in front of his face. What is this? <laughs> so on the way back home, uh, DCI makes Troy stop in the middle of the road, and they run into a bookshop and they buy Max Jennings' book, mm-hmm. and. For some reason, and this is the, this is the thing I don't get, is that DCI Barnaby it, it demands that Troy stop in the middle of the road to go buy this book, and then gives it to Joyce to read. And he's not a reader. Which he's is... not the like. What's the point of buying the book if you're not going to read it when it is attached to the murder case? Because I think he respects Joyce's insights, which we find out later. Like he actually he actually respects the insights, and I think this is the first because we didn't see it in the pilot. We saw her as kind of a ditzy woman who couldn't cook. But he's like, I'll give this to Joyce, who is a reader. She's a reader. She she runs a book club, we find out mm-hmm. later. And yeah, so I mean, she Joyce is, does this actually multiple times throughout the series. It's like, yeah. so, a reader. Yeah, so she's a reader. So he's like, I know my wife is a reader, and she reads very well. And she's also... Well, no, she's not the next... Barnaby wife is. I was about to say that she's an English. No, that's the next Barnaby no, wife. That's I was next gonna, Barnaby. <laughs> next Barnaby. Other Barnaby. And men don't read in Britain. I guess. I guess that's really. That. I guess that's really what I'm missing. Unless it's the Financial Times. <laughs> yeah, like I'm a reader. You're a reader. Like to me, this is the weird, a weirdly weird thing. But it does lead to me to my favorite fact I learned Uh-oh. about this thing because I didn't recognize our five. British actor, our fifth British actor in this episode, even though there obviously was one. So I always have IMDb up typically while I'm watching these episodes because, again, I'm like, oh, that person, what else have they been in? Where do I recognize them from? And I didn't recognize anybody, but I did have it up and I was scanning through it to see if I did recognize somebody. 
And John Shrapnel, who plays Max Jennings, if you go to IMDb, check out his IMDb picture. Mm. Shrapnel with two? Uh, S-H-R-A-P-N-E-L. Yes, like shrapnel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, A, I haven't eaten a whole lot, and I'm at least two glasses of wine deep. Oh. And <laughs> so you see, you got him up? Mm-hmm. Now think back to that scene where Joyce is reading the book. They use that picture for his author photo on the back jacket of this episode that was nice. filmed in 1998. <laughs> ah! Nice. I'm dying. I died. I literally had to pause the episode and go laugh. I was like, he hasn't updated his... Like, I don't know if he had the picture first or if they... like. Either way, he's got the same headshot on IMDb right now. I guess that's just his headshot. He's been doing shit since the... His first thing was in 1963. Like, jeez, man. Well, Mrs. Jennings, he was in Troy? Shit. Yeah. He was a gladiator? He was in all sorts of shit that I didn't even think about. Yeah, he's in... He's in Merlin? He's in Merlin? Oh my god, he's in Merlin! <laughs> five British actors. Yeah, I told you. Anyway, so from Mrs. Jennings, we do learn that his secretary, Bouncing Barbara, whose tits are not that big. No, it's very much more like she has like the dick sucking lips. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't, like, I guess. I mean, that's not something you would actually say about a woman generally. Yeah. Uh, What would you call it? You don't have a dick. Blowy Barbara. Yeah. Blowy Barbara. Blowy Barbara. <laughs> the secretary is the one who books all of Max's travel because he is supposed to be in Denmark. Denmark. Um, so they go interview her and she's obviously covering something up also. Mm-hmm. And then they finally go around to interview Laura Hutton. And she breaks down. Like, of all of them, she cracks a little bit under pressure. Mm-hmm. Because she saw a prostitute go into Gerald's house. Yeah. And she was so distraught by this guy. Not that he didn't return her feelings, but that he would sink so low as to go home with a prostitute. Oh, God. I can't. I can't. I can't sometimes with these British people. (laughs) Which my first thought wouldn't have been prostitute. Right? Like, A... From the glimpse that we get in Laura's flashback scene, she doesn't look like a prostitute. I was th- like, she looks like a poor, like a woman in like ill-fitting clothes, but like not like skin tight, like not like pretty woman. Yeah, this isn't Julia like Roberts, pretty woman. Like what is that lime green bustier? Shit, like I've even got some of the leggings that you've got the backs cut out of now. That's like a thing these days. Yeah. Doesn't look like a prostitute, but whatever, Laura. Whatever. Yeah. She's just jealous. Then, this is all the same, like, goddamn day at this point. Mm-hmm. They go back to the school, and this is the part where, like, before I was like, Brian's a dick, this is the part where I can't deal with Brian. Mm-hmm. They ask him about his play. Mm-hmm. The title of his play is Slang Wang for Five Mute Voices. Yeah, it's a 90s play. 
like, I don't know. It's one of those, like, teatro in the real, you know, theatre in the real, like, where everyone is themselves and, or, you know, they're playing, like, real people with real issues. It's so 90s. So ridiculously 90s. I remember... Um, this wasn't in the 90s, this wasn't, but it was in the early 2000s. So I went to see this play, and like half of it, the actors are in the nude, and they do like like sex scenes that are like, you're like, maybe put on a condom? Ooh. Yeah, it's one of those plays. And it's obvious why he wants to do those type of plays. So, yeah. Yeah, so he's explaining to his students uh, the importance of the coup de théâtre, mm-hmm. the final scene, the real climax of the play, and he charges for somebody who is a playwright, mm-hmm. a playwright. Uh, he charges his kids with coming up with the coup de théâtre, but like whatever, whatever. Uh, my favorite whole part of this scene was the kids' outfits. Mm-hmm. Is this was so 90s. And not only was this so 90s, this is so British 90s. Because, I don't know about you, but I was a big Spice Girls fan. <clears throat> but I would never be as big of a Spice Girls fan as anybody British. And like... No, I'm sure. <laughs> we had, you know, platform shoes and stuff like that that came back in the 90s. Because 98 would have been the year I entered my freshman year of high school. Mm, you're so but, old. I didn't... Thirty-four today. Um, but there is a girl in this scene who has the full-on baby spice white platform shoes, mm-hmm. and that I was just like, "Oh, girl, I feel you. I feel you right now." <laughs> I was just, I just that was what I loved about it. One of the biggest things is that they weren't wearing uniforms, which immediately put them as a comprehensive and not an academy. The comprehensive versus academy thing was huge, uh, starting in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and comprehensives were for poor kids. Like, if you were poor, you went to a comprehensive, if you were rich, you went to academy, until they banned academies, and every school became either free school or comprehensive, yeah, whatever, what the fuck ever. But, like, the fact that they didn't have uniforms was weird, because A, almost every school in Britain has uniforms now, and B, I was like, well, okay, sure. She would totally wear a crop top and a mini skirt. That was Edie. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely Edie. Edie, I mean, Edie for, they dress her like the femme fatale type. Mm-hmm. The Lolita, I guess, is mm-hmm. a better. Yeah. They dress her like Lolita. I get, like, I mean, girls would never have gotten away with that at my high school. Mm-hmm. Ever. Ever. Yeah. And again, I, that was 1998 that I went to high school. You could not have worn that in my school. But we also do find out that Troy went to this school. Yep. So we kind of also get a little bit of more insight into his background and how much he hated school, like, I guess, which explains a lot about Troy. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to be, like, a cab all up in here. I don't know what that means. All cops are bastards. Oh! <laughs> okay, let's just, we're going to just throw this one out here right now. Oh, Part of the reason Sabrina and I are good friends is that we're both fairly radically left-leaning. So if that's I mean, not your deal, <laughs> you're probably not going to like this podcast. I, I don't mean to be ACAB, but the fact that Troy hates school and is now a detective sergeant tells me everything I need to know about cop culture, not only in America, 
but in Britain. Because they don't... Not only the America and in Britain, but fictional Britain. <laughs> yes, yeah, fictional Britain. They just don't take the best of brightest, do they? And Barnaby is different. Barnaby, obviously, is Cambridge educated and things. But he's also a detective inspector and not a detective sergeant. So there's still class at play. Troy would never become detective inspector. I think... And, you know, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I do really appreciate Troy's growth. Because, like, we oh, talked yeah. about in the first episode, his homophobia. Mm-hmm. And that will come up again in this episode. And it actually comes up, I think, in another episode, too. But by the end of it, he's very much kind of changed in that by the time he leaves the show, he's he's a better person. Like, yeah. he's straight up a better person. Really- and I do think that they did really well with that and I don't know if it's part that this was part of the novel or just that even this is like the second novel second episode right Mm -hmm. but I do think that as a show they recognized the need for a lot of character growth from from, sorry yeah and I think and I think it went from just the age of the show like as it got older it got more you know with it the, yeah. the creator's show is an awful racist and oh god I wasn't even going to bring it up yet but that's totally a thing we have to talk about at yeah. some point <laughs> this show is problematic hashtag problematic that oh, doesn't god. mean I don't enjoy it for whatever it is book she starts telling Barnaby a little bit about the plot how there's this young boy Liam and he's been abused by his father and he kills him and he goes and runs away and this is obviously a throwback to the very very first opening scene Mm -hmm. um and so we think at this point that the opening scene is just from the narrative of the book as a read or as a Mm -hmm. viewer I did yes um and so she's explaining how like he went and like hung out like I guess was now I wasn't so clear but I assumed that the, he was like found a lover in this artist who like dressed him up in all these historical costumes mm-hmm. and painted him as a very young boy mm-hmm. even as these historical you know figures yeah um and made a fuck ton of money yes um but while she's talking about this Barnaby gets a call because they have found Max Jennings Jennings has been dead for two whole days at this point. Mm-hmm. Dr. Death is... Grandpa Death. Yes. Grandpa Death is talking about how he might have been poisoned, etc., etc. And so... And he's at, like, a seaside somewhere. Mm-hmm. I couldn't catch the actual name of the town. I didn't either. Uh, so, driving home, Barnaby recaps the clues to Troy. They get back to the police station, and Troy reveals they cannot find any record whatsoever of Gerald Hadley as a person. They had been told he was a civil servant, um, but they can't find him in any database. Like, he's just, like, it's very clearly at this point a fake name. Mm -hmm. Which, for me, when I first watched this, I was like, holy crap, he was writing a thriller, he's a spy. Oh, I didn't even go that route. Mm -hmm. When I first watched it, I was like... Obviously, he's a spy. He works for MI6. He has to have a cover story. I was, I was, I was at this point. I was a little confused. Like, I mean, I got it. I was like, okay, we're gonna find out more, and I'm con- content to wait. But no, that's a way better theory. <laughs> I love all spy stories. Uh, it could be because my students think I am a spy. 
You speak too many languages. I speak too many languages. I have a funny accent. I'm very cagey about my own personal details. Yeah, my students think it's like. But I love Bond. I love any any spy, even the satire spy ones. I will watch. I will watch all spy movies, everything. Love it. I haven't seen Man from Uncle yet, so don't don't rock. <gasps> like, I know, I know. I still have to watch it. Whatever. Anyway, I'll probably watch you it. You do have to watch it. That yeah. is two beautiful men fighting each other with a beautiful woman also there. Okay. Like, just, just watch it for the pretty. Yeah, that's fine. No, uh, I, I watched the original show. So. <laughs> yeah, that's better than me. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, not the movie. But anyway, so I love all spy things. So, the first time I saw it, I was like, Gerald Hadley is a spy. That also gets interrupted, which is a thing that apparently happens at the police station. Yeah. Uh, by Blowy Barbara. So, she comes in to talk to the police. Blowy Barbara is a much better name. It is, right? Like, she's slim. She, like, I have big boobs. Mine bounce. Like, I have to wear, like, the fucking sports bras with an underwire type deal. Oh, well, she's no, not, my, she's my not boobs aren't that, My boobs aren't that big anymore, so. <laughs> so, Bar- Blowy Barbara comes in to talk to the police, and she basically admits that she knew Max Jennings was dead and that they had been sleeping together for two years, and they were supposed to go on this, like, seaside vacation weekend and, like, just, you know, bang like rabbits. And then she shows up and he was dead. Um, Which, like, honestly, if you are probably, what, 50 years younger than the dude you're banging, don't you, like, have a contingency plan for that? (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Like, he was not a young man. (laughs) She's very clearly in her 20s. What? Oh, no. With my lingerie, I'm going to have a defibrillator. Just pack it in the overnight bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that has been the plot of several movies. Like, that was, like, the plot of Dave, right? That movie about the presidential impersonator guy. Yeah. So anyway, so they find out that, they, you know, like, there's nothing really, I guess, murder untowards in Barbara's reticence to talk about it. Yeah. So she gets scratched off the suspect list. They do find Hadley's lawyer. And he reveals that he has left over $2 million to a school of art, which is where you start getting the real first big hints about who he is. Yeah. But also, he has left 100,000 pounds. I guess pounds, not dollars. Yeah. (laughs) Americanizing this. Um, But 100,000 pounds to Amy Lydiard. So they go to give her the good news. And he had one of the more intense scenes of the entire episode. This was kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. There was some really good at, at acting in this episode. Yeah. Like, you know, just super props. Like, the dude who played Brian Clapper was fucking creepy as shit. Yeah. But also, like, in the very, you know, 40s, mid-40s man having a midlife crisis kind of way. And then, so they talk to Amy Lydiard about uh, a little bit. They tell her about the inheritance she's going to receive. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm fucking peacing out. Like, I'm done. Fuck this crazy bitch. And uh, so she tells Honoria. And Honoria goes, like, off on her. Like, there's this whole, like, scene where, like, she's chopping, I think, like, radish? Like a daikon radish-looking thing? Parsnips. Parsnip. I mean, fuck. God, parsnips are so gross. I love parsnips. You can go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) You You roast them with your Sunday roast. God damn it, no, and they're delicious. No, no, 
No. Mm -mm. no. <laughs> oh. Oh. Go to hell. Also, why I don't have a British boyfriend, right? Like, there are multiple reasons at this point. Yeah, I know, right? Also, because it works. So, so we get Honoria waving a knife around, going, blood and bone! Blood and bone! And that's, again, also kind of our first real, like, crack in her weird-ass snobby armor. Yeah, no, she was always weird. She wasn't that weird, though. Like, she was just, like, a, a snob. She. So the next scene we get is Sue Clapper sees Lorem moving out. And at this point, I'm like, oh, fuck, Lorem murdered him. Absolutely, Lorem murdered him. But we get to see that she had inherited something as well, a painting. Mm -hmm. And she shows it off to Sue Clapper. <sighs> this is the thing that I, like, I'm like, okay, this is where this episode really lost me. This painting looks exactly like the actor from the opening scene. Yes. Like, so if we hadn't been already picking up on the clues, this was, like, very much like the, the big over the head. Yeah. That, like, the dude from the painting is the dude from the opening of the scene, and if we already know that the opening of the scene is in the novel, then the novel is clearly based on something from real life. Yes. And I'm like, that's a little too, too on the nose for me. No, um, I feel like... There, there weren't enough hints, enough good hints in the pilot. So I think they were like, let's really push it with this one. And there weren't enough really good hints in this one. But it's a red herring because Max Jennings wrote the book. And now we can, now every viewer in our head is going to be like, well, then Max Jennings killed Gerald Hartley. Yeah, I guess that's true. So it's a red, so guess, it's actually a red herring clue. It has nothing to do with the actual killer. Well, uh, yes and no. Yeah, true. Yes and no. I mean, it does. I, I still at it this does part. A stretch, but it does. At this part, I still thought Laura killed him because she was moving away. Like I was, that's yeah. where I was oh, yeah. with this. Barnaby and Troy manage. Uh, so we haven't talked about it, but there was like Hadley's car had been stolen, and so they finally tracked down where. He got picked up one night from a taxi. It's right outside a club and they go in to the club and the big giveaway prior to the proprietor showing up. It's all the, all the Greek statues everywhere. The Greek statues, but also uh, there's an entire like cork board with posters about what to do with HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a super nineties, like good on them for showing that and like, because people will obviously get that reference. And it's not that HIV and AIDS are not talked about now, but it's so much more of a controlled disease. It is. And these it, days. And once again, fuck Thatcher. Fuck Reagan, but fuck Thatcher. <laughs> she also was one of those, you know, AIDS is the cancer of the gays type people. And um, yeah. so, like, this information was important but it wasn't distributed enough. And that's why we lost a whole generation of homosexual men. And like I said, fuck Thatcher, fuck Reagan. It was only until the 90s with mm -hmm. uh, the new labor and um, fuck the new labor too, but that's another story. But with new <laughs> labor and the Democrats where we finally get like AIDS and HIV getting the proper respect. And even then it was shaky. 
Yeah, and, and but I mean, there was a tireless work of a ton of activists throughout mm -hmm. the 90s also to get that information out. And like, I just thought this was a really excellent little snapshot of... Well, not not just that. Okay, so homosexuality was declared illegal in 1967 in England, but mm -hmm. it wasn't declared illegal in the military until 1994, and the age of consent was 21 for homosexual men, 16 for heterosexuals. So people were still getting arrested, still getting, obviously, to this day, still getting harassed, and still, there was still quite a large stigma on homosexuality, even though technically it was legal. It wasn't. People, like, there was a huge, like, people were getting arrested for even looking like they were soliciting. Like, if they had, if someone caught two men kissing on a street corner, they could be arrested, even if they were over 21. So it was very patchwork the way it went. So the fact that this, A, the ball was underground. Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting that it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, on the street corner, it was actually below the street corner, even in the 90s, and even in England, we didn't completely uh, legalize homosexual sex acts until 2003 in the United States. So don't think we're any better, buddies. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and no, I just I just thought this was an excellent scene, it was. a little snapshot of what, of homosexuality and uh, in the 90s. Like, I thought, like, I mean, as much as like people like to talk like in the US obviously real world was a thing and then you had Pedro who came on who had AIDS mm -hmm. and like that's what opened a lot of like people's eyes in the US to it and I just the only the biggest eye-opener was George Michaels in yes. Britain and um he was quote-unquote a bad homosexual he was obviously still very closeted and treated his homosexuality as a crime it, but he was also consistently arrested for like soliciting and things like that so it's kind of like okay but my favorite thing was that Barnaby was totally okay with everything that was going on which was weird I was like oh. well so here's my thing is I think this show it's it, this was an interesting so this is kind of the point right like or kind of a point I was thinking about uh yesterday is that this show would have probably been very, very progressive. Like right now, Barnaby, I don't think is necessarily somebody that we consider, we would consider like full on ally to the gays. Like he is, he uses terminology that we wouldn't necessarily want anybody to use today, like transvestite. Yeah, but he also, but he also uses homosexual and not like. Yeah, he doesn't he totally use, yeah, used. doesn't use any problematic terms. He doesn't... Mine is uh, transsexual. Uh, transsexual yeah. is just what, you know, I, but he didn't use a slur. No, and I th so I think my thing is that, like, in the 90s, he was as progressive as you really got because he was treating it like fact mm -hmm. and not so much like an, like an illness or an affliction or something to be a thing. It was just, this person is gay. This person, you know, dresses like a woman. This is all a thing that happens, and that's what I need to deal with is that this is a reality, not so much that there is a judgment call on it. And so I think from at this time in 1998, this would have been a very, very progressive stance. Whereas when you're, we're watching it now in 2018, you can kind of point out some of those flaws. We have more people who are willing to talk about it openly. So we know the terminology to use. Barnaby right. wouldn't have 
had any transsexual friends to like go and be like, so tell me a little bit about this. Um, right. And he does say- Because who the fuck is going to tell like the chief of police that, <laughs> right, about this? So he, he does say transvestite or transsexual, whatever the term is now. Like he is, he's not, he doesn't stick with transvestite. He does use it at first, which is problematic, but he's yeah. also like, I'm not an expert on this language or what to use. And, you know, the one thing I will say is that I don't particularly enjoy how this is played for like the big review. Yeah, very true. The dun 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 of the show. No, I, I don't appreciate it, but it makes sense for the time it was. Gerald yeah. Hadley would have kept this private, especially as, and here's the thing, I was still thinking he was a spy because of how, <laughs> no, 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 because of how Max Jennings died. A long-acting person, yeah. he was still a spy. So, of course, I was like, uh, well, of course he wouldn't want this as a as a probably a respected civil servant. He wouldn't want this part of his life to be revealed. And, so I'm going to move us along because yeah. we have to move along. <laughs> <laughs> so the next scene we get, once we get this dun-dun-dun, is we switch back to our character, our other characters. So Brian goes to Edie's house because she desperately needs somebody to talk to about the play. And like, for as good as he says that she is an actress, she's a fucking terrible actress. But of course he he just wants to get in her uh, pants, so. And he does, which is fucking creepy as shit. Oh my God, it's so creepy. I'm sorry. So there's like, I'm sorry. Literally all my notes are like, God, he's so creepy. Yes. The weird thing is, is I really don't see what this has to do with the rest of the fucking show. It has nothing to do with the rest of the fucking show. I was so disturbed by this storyline. So disturbed by this storyline. And like, maybe again, 2018 Carolyn watching him sing from 1998. But I don't see how this is not disturbing in 1988. And I feel like this storyline is played specifically because it's disturbing. And... Okay, so as a teacher, this happens literally. I have not, I've been a teacher since, well, on and off, I've been a teacher since 2010. So for eight years, on and off, you know, for various reasons. But mm -hmm. every year that I've been a teacher, there's been a story. When I worked at a, a school, um, that one of my best uh, co-worker buddies, took the place of a teacher who this had happened to. So oh not only like not only was the story creepy, this story is so achingly familiar that it's not beyond the realm. It's just that like No, I mean obviously I don't think it's beyond the realm either. Yeah. Like I can read headlines, but like ugh. I legitimately don't see what it like this subplot added nothing to the main story. So I was like, yay, we get to get rid of this creeper because his disgustingness has been publicly like, and I don't like, I'm like, what was the writer trying to make the point that Clapper was the disgusting one and not Hadley, which was a weird way of going about that. But yeah, so maybe, 
maybe. I'm going to be optimistic and be like, while you were busy worrying about the gays, look at this one. I'm going to be optimistic. I, I like that reading. I will, I will also subscribe to that reading. Because my thing is like, so we, and kind of like the next scene, we do see that the students are the ones blackmailing him. Like somebody was taking pictures, the students are blackmailing him. And like, there's this whole scene where he kind of like, they try to blackmail him for money. He kind of like breaks down and then they like play it off like it's their coup de théâtre. Mm -hmm. And that's where this whole thing goes really weird for me. Like I'm okay with, his creepiness being exposed and like that being the plot point mm -hmm. but then like it goes very much from that being the plot point to like ha 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 it's a joke we don't actually want five thousand pounds from you well and then but then they do, they do. <laughs> but like it's a very very weird scene in that like it's starting off from a weird like a point of like everybody like this entire build-up is him being a creeper and then you go into this whole thing, this whole scene, the coup de théâtre scene, where he's the your sympathetic, he's the sympathetic character in that scene. Mm -hmm. And again, full on credit to uh, what's his fucking face, David Troughton. Mm -hmm. Troughton. I don't actually know how to say his name. He did a great job. He did. But I was so confused by what the point was. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, so, but the point is that they do end up putting up the, the pictures all over the village and we assume that he is laughed out of the village because, or like hopefully prosecuted, but for sure loses his job. And like in my head canon, Sue Clapper goes on to publish her children's book and becomes a millionaire and has divorced him. Yes. And she's a millionaire and she gets to like lounge all day and have her awful ex-husband like humiliated. And possibly in prison. Have a cocktail at 2 The weird thing is, um, they don't spend enough time in prison as they actually need. A lot of these people get like six to eight months. That what what I guess is assumed is that they lose their teaching license and lose the ability to get any sort of job. But um, nope, not enough time. Yeah, that, it, it's just it's a really weird storyline for this particular episode, and it's a really fucking like weird storyline in the way it's written. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of ruined the episode for me, to be honest. Yes, that I just didn't understand. I really didn't understand. Yeah. So back to our main storyline, though, they had get, got some information from Hadley's lawyer again, solicitor, I guess, if we're going to use the proper term, mm -hmm. and they go to a flat that he has, I guess, in London? Yes, in London at the Albert Hall. I have had tea in one of these flats. <laughs> you would. No, it was, it looked, it didn't look exactly like this. It was slightly different. It was, it was slightly different model, but those places do exist. They're the Albert Hall mansions, and they are glorious, and there is a dull person at... Like, I had such a clear memory of this that the first time I watched it, I was like, oh my god, did they use that woman's flat? No. Because then I was like, no. <laughs> but it was just so funny. I was like, huh. huh? And this is Barnaby's aha moment. This is when he realizes that the kid in the story isn't just a kid from a story. The kid from the story is uh, Gerald Hadley. Mm -hmm. And this is also when he realizes that uh, Max Jennings, who had been a psychiatrist prior to becoming an author, is probably the guy who stole, or is definitely the guy who stole Hadley's story. Mm -hmm. 
again, published it, and that Hadley is probably the one who offed Jennings. Yeah. They go to this flashback, and I just want to point this out because this is so weird to me. They go to this flashback. He pulls the poison out of his cupboard mm-hmm. from behind his spices. Yep. Am I just not British enough to keep poison in my cupboard behind my fucking cayenne pepper? Uh, once again, spy. Like, and I mean, granted, like, let's be real, the British would never have cayenne pepper. So, oh, they would, they would now, not in the nineties. But, <laughs> but that's another thing. He had spent some time in Turkey, so he would probably have spices. You'd probably, but you don't keep your slow-acting poison behind your spices. That just seems like a terrible kitchen organization. Oh, yes. Anyway, so they also find in this flat uh, the same uh, newspaper that Honoria had shown them at at hers, that the one that caused them to rush over to Hadley's house Mm -hmm. in Midsummer Worthy. And he sees the picture of... Uh, Honoria's brother, long beloved brother, whose name I cannot remember at this point in time. Paul. And Paul, right? No. I thought it was like Andrew. No, it starts with an R. Ron- Ronald, Ryan. I don't know. Honoria's brother. Ron. Ryan. He's not even listed on the IMDb <laughs> for the picture credit, so like I don't know. His her brother and Gerald, Gerald, uh, with their arms slung about each other. And they're very clearly smiling and happy. And again, I didn't know if this is like a weird nod, mm-hmm. but it's the naval times. And in the US, obviously the Navy is the one that people made all the jokes about, like everybody's gay in the Navy. But the implication was very much so that Gerald and uh, the brother had been lovers. Mm-hmm. And so they rush off to uh, the estate, the Lydiard estate, and a storm starts breaking. Yes. I just thought that was a little on the nose. I don't. I didn't. I didn't quite under. Like, I mean, I guess England rains a lot. Like, I live in a not rainy place, so sure. Literally, it could be bright and sunny, and then, okay. <laughs> Rather than supporting cast. Uh, so the storm starts breaking, um, and we go back to the. We flash the estate, and while packing. Amy, who is trying to get out of there really quick, finds this suitcase that has gone missing from Gerard's, or Ger- Ger- Gerald's. I have had a lot to drink. And not. <laughs> uh, Gerald's house of his clothes, his missing clothes, his female clothes. Oh, no. And from there, Honoria confesses that she had to kill him for her brother's like long dead honor because they were lovers. So she tries to kill Amy then. Like, she's got her fucking knife from her daikon radish. Parsnip. And... Parsnip. <laughs> chases her throughout the house. And it's, like, the slowest chase ever. Well, she's, like, she's very old, so... Amy's not that old. Like, Amy's, like, walking. Yeah. Amy is walking through the house while Honoria is walking behind her with a knife. I, I just, like, they're... This is some Rosemary and Thyme shit right here. Yes. <laughs> well, Ralph! His name is Ralph! I wrote it down! Ralph. Okay. His name is Ralph. I knew it was kind of with an R. <laughs> but no. But I, it ups the tension a little bit that Honoria is just like, let her tire herself out like a fox running away from the hunt. I'll just kill her in my own time. So, Which is, I, sorry, I, that was actually really creepy. I can't believe I just... <laughs> 
so has found the key to this room that Honoria mysteriously locked earlier mm-hmm. and goes inside it and it's Ralph's old room and we do this camera pan around the bed. Where, where she's kept all of his like, you know, fantasticness, all his trophies and things like that. And so you're seeing this camera pan and you're like, holy shit, like this is like a shrine to Ralph. And then it pans down to the bed and there's this mummified fucking corpse. With a wig. And that's when you realize that she is fucking crazy as shit. Like, I mean, like, I mean, you knew it because she was obviously trying to keep, like, you're crazy as shit if you're trying to kill somebody, but then, like, you're crazy as shit Mm -hmm. if you're trying to kill somebody because you want to protect the mummified corpse in your house. Yes. And eventually, like, she, like, breaks down the door. I love the shining. Like, I'm like, okay, cool. This is not creepy at all. (laughs) And I just want you to die. And then, like, she lunges for Amy, but she, Amy is, like, cat like reflexes and dodges out of the way and oh really just steps to the side <laughs> yeah whatevs cause you know Honoria's old we've already established this and she like goes through the fucking window and dies yes and this is the second episode in a row are you quite done <laughs> this is the second episode in a row where no she's not dead <laughs> where the villain gets death instead of justice? Yes. Well, okay, here's the thing. Um, the death penalty doesn't exist in England, hasn't since the 60s. And so I guess the people watching this show are probably old enough to remember and still want the death penalty. And for heinous murders like bashing someone's skull in with a candlestick and the 50,000 murders in the first episode... You want the death penalty, apparently. And so, to keep your middle-class heart still beating, still watching the show, they're going to kill off the murderers. It's fine. I guess, I guess. I mean, again, I think this is part of where it comes back to, this was another novel episode and not a and not a written-for-television episode. Did you figure it out? No. Yeah, me neither. I totally thought it was Laura all the way through. Until, like, the final part. I didn't think it was Laura... No, I thought she totally killed him for being gay and, like, not loving her. Oh, oh I, I, I simply just thought it was, if not, Je- I thought that it was going to be, like, Jennings' wife. <laughs> no, but I, don't, I didn't know who it was. I legitimately didn't know who it was. And upon second watch, I had completely forgotten that it was Honoria. So it was like, ah. Oh. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Um, no, this one, I'm sure if I had watched it better... I didn't watch it pretty well. <laughs> I mean, we took notes on it. We watched okay. <laughs> Did you like the episode? Mm, yeah. Yes. Not as much as I liked the first one. I didn't. I just felt there was a lot that cheapened the episode. Yeah. I didn't like the. I didn't like the B plot about. I mean, and not just because it was uncomfortable, but because, like we talked about, it didn't fit. And the one thing that also really, really cheapened the episode for me was at the very very end amy who was ralph's wife this yeah that's i hated that who was like it was aids wasn't it yeah like you could have not like like we knew he was lovers with with gerald like we knew he was gay we didn't that was such a like a weird throwaway line 
and we had and I had previously up until then really loved that very very short scene mm-hmm. and thought it was extremely well done and important to the story and then to have it then used as just like oh he died of AIDS I was just like that's it it just cheapened the whole thing for me yeah. like like up until then I could have found a lot that I did like about this and there was stuff I did like about it I thought it was a great mystery but like no it just cheapened the entire episode for me are you ready for for Midsummer Murders episode 3 Death of a Hollow Man I mean possibly I have to watch it That will, that will be our next episode on our next episode of Wine and Murder Night. Dun, dun. I'm Carolyn. You can find me on Twitter at Classlicity. And this is Sabrina. You can find me at SDMWrite. And thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review our show on iTunes. That's how we're going to get more listeners. If you love mysteries, tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is the absolute best way to get the show out. Uh, and I want to go ahead and thank Anton Koryakov for the use of our t- theme music, Simple Life, off the album Restart. Till next time. Bye.